Welcome back to the Consequences podcast with Paul McNulty and Sean McCreevy. Ladies and gents, welcome back to the, the podcast. We're absolutely thrilled to death today to have with us uh, a man that we've been wanting to chat with for a long, long time, and the planets have finally lined up. We have with us Mr. Paul Burgess, not just uh, an extremely experienced and talented drummer, a man who's had many, many interesting projects outside 10CC, which we'd love to delve into today, but he has the accolade of being in 10CC almost as long as Graham Gouldman. Paul Burgess, welcome to the podcast. Hi. How are you doing, Paul? Are you are you well? I'm okay, thank you. Not What's particularly that? busy, but uh... right. Okay, yeah, and you must be worried about from a gig point of view, as we all are and have been and what's going to happen in the near future, I suppose. Yeah, we, we were just uh, relieved that we managed to, uh, you know, get the European tour out of the way. Yes, um, brilliant, yeah. And yeah. We, we'd love to hear about that as well, Paul, obviously, that's okay. Uh-huh. I'm, I've got my fingers crossed for February in Leicester. Oh right, Which right. Is, uh, it's going to be my first 10 cc gig. I can't. I can't. Yes. Really, yeah. I, no, How can you say that? It's Sean, shameful. Eh? Yeah. I, <laughs> I feel like a bit of a an imposter sitting yeah, here, eighty odd episodes into a bloody 10 cc <laughs> podcast. It's just outrageous. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But how, how have the gigs gone, Paul? Uh, very well. Extremely well. Um, I mean, everybody was on tenter hooks. The uh, the promoters and um, I mean, there's a, a great deal of um, paperwork to to go through, you know, all the uh, whys and wherefores. Yeah. But nothing, nothing that we're we're not really used to over here. You know, the um, once we we got the the proof of vaccination and all that, you know, it's, they were quite happy with that. Yeah. Um, we, when when we came back, uh, things started to hot up a bit more over over there. But um, yeah. Yeah. No, it was it was it was okay. We, we 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 got through fairly fairly unscathed. Yeah, well, that's great. I mean, it's weird, isn't it? It feels like so long ago that you you were almost trapped over in Australia and New Zealand, weren't you? When um, when the pandemic actually started, weren't you? weren't you out we, on tour there? Well, we'd come back. We just got back from um, New Zealand about a week before lockdown. So uh, we were okay in that respect. Um, I was quite surprised when when I when I arrived in Britain that uh, there were the very little. Well, there were no checks mm. at all, mm. and yet as as we were passing through, um, I think we came back via Singapore. You know, everybody was wearing masks. Uh, by the time we got to Britain, you know that all, all that wasn't in place. Yeah, uh, we kind of suspended. We later, the panic set in. Yeah, yeah and, right, right. And that's when it all started. Yeah, but everybody yeah. was uh, everybody was okay. Everybody tested negative. Right. Excellent. And of course, speaking of Australia, poor old Rick's yeah. still stuck out there, isn't he? <laughs> yeah. Well, 
I think he, he I think he had he had things in hand to to come and do the tour, but the the problem was he was fearful about getting back. Yeah, right. Afterwards, because Australia were tightening up um, a great deal, and the, he he felt that he might he might possibly get stuck in Europe over over Christmas and God knows how far into next year. Mm -hmm. Sure, sure. So. Um, that you know that that really decided it for him. Um, a shame, a shame. But we uh, the, the the chap who who stood in for him is is fantastic. So we you know the, the, there were no um, shortfalls on the uh, on the musicians' side. Great stuff. Tell us about tell us about the the lineup of the live band. Current lineup: We have um, Graham, of course, myself from the old days. Uh, we have Keith Heyman on keyboards. He's been with us all. Oh, I can't think how long. Twelve years, maybe. Mm. Um, he's also Cliff Richards, MD. So um, he he has a debt as and when. Uh, not that not that often, but there are people who stand in for him. Um, in fact, on on this trip, the first two gigs there was a there was an overlap with Cliff, so um, we had um, uh, Kieran Kieran Jeremiah from a band called The Feeling. Oh yeah, what a, what a vocalist! Yeah, um, well he was on keyboards uh, for the first two two gigs and then Keith was able to rejoin us um, right so the final oh yes there's um, the vocalist we've had for the past five or six years is um, Ian Hornell yeah yeah who um, also works with the LO Jeff Jefflin's currently LO yeah but we love uh, um, we love a lot of, of Ian's original stuff as well Right, right. Well, Ian, Ian was was the debt for quite quite a while, and then um, when Nick Wilson left, I think it must be it must be five years ago now. Um, Ian took over. Um, I mean, Ian has a debt as well because we, if uh, ELO suddenly uh, get working, then he needs to cover that. Yeah. Yes. Uh, so the, yes, the final one on this trip was um, Nick Kendall, right. the guitar player. Um, he's got a, a very interesting potted history. Um, great, great player, and um, of course they all—they all, everybody apart from me contributes vocally. I'm, I'm not a singer, mm -hmm. but. Um, they they all tackle the uh, the harmony work, so it's it's worked out really well. Brilliant, brilliant. great, really great team. Yeah. During our, our chat today, Paul, and, and we're absolutely thrilled um, that you've joined us. It's marvelous. Uh, we'd love to talk about lots of aspects of Ten CC's career and your career, both in the band and and outside the band. 
But just as you were talking then, I was really curious as to how these musicians in the current bands compare and, and contrast with the old days um, in terms of working on stage with Eric, Kevin and Lowell. Are there similarities? Are there big differences? Donna. Thank you. The generation thing is is quite quite striking. Um, I mean, the approach was a lot different than the old days uh, because everything was new back then. Um, these days, you know, it's very very hard to be original. Mm. Very hard. It's easy it's easy to uh, emulate and to copy. Yes. Uh, but to be original is um, is extremely difficult now. Um, and there's a lot of cloning, you know, uh, guitar players, for instance, you know, they, they've got so much to listen to and, and not, not only listen to, but to watch, mm. right? You know, we, we learn by listening, um, yeah. these days, if, if, if somebody wants to work something out, they can see it, they yes. can see the technique, they can see the finger movements and we didn't have all that. So. Everybody learned themselves or taught themselves. And of course, there was a lot of originality because everything was new. There wasn't that much to, to copy. Yeah. You know, it was, it was a fantastic time to be around. Um, I, I wouldn't want to be starting today. I really wouldn't. Um, but regarding the standards, I mean, techniques have, have um, come on in leaps and bounds. Uh, you know, the way the way people learn. As I said, they've got everything at their disposal. Yes. Um, learning from all the top players. And they learn all the tricks early on. So by the time they're out playing in bands, you know, they're pretty proficient to begin with. Yeah. So in that respect, technically, players are far far better than they were years ago but to put it into perspective because everything wasn't available back then uh, learning wise um, it makes it even more incredible what they came up with <laughs> you know the, oh, yeah. uh, the original aspect <clears throat> yes um, every, every band had its individuality very well, recognizable yeah, well, I mean that's true of all a lot of bands in seventies in the seventies. But I mean, there was no band more original than Ten CC. I mean, with four those four characters, it was absolutely overflowing with invention, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. Well, it was it was it was a band of two factions really, because mm -hmm. um, there was the uh, the commercial side, the pop the pop music side, which was Eric and Graham. And then you had the two gung-ho art, art students, yes. Kevin Lott, who who'd try anything, you know. So um, 
I always I always think that um, the, the commercial side needed to kick up the pants, <laughs> and the um, <laughs> the adventurous side needed needed reining in at times. So the midway point was, uh, you know, where you ended up. Absolutely. We couldn't agree with you more there, Paul. It, it was like this push-pull, wasn't there? The dynamics towards yeah. kind of sensible yeah. pop or, or a sensible attitude to writing pop music and then this mm. wacky, crazy thing. When the, when the two met, it was amazing, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, the, the interesting thing is that um, after Kevin Lowell left, uh, their first project, well, it, it was partly the reason why they left, because they wanted to uh, pursue this project, uh, which is a thing called Consequences. We've never heard of that album. <laughs> He's joking. Uh, He's joking. We, 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 in fact, somebody named a podcast after it. <laughs> well, it's, uh, it's, it's not an album, it's a triple album. That's right. What, what are your thoughts on that, on that crazy thing? I liked it. I mean, it was it was pretty out there. <laughs> I mean, th- this was the um, this was them left on rain. You know, they that's what they did. You know, they they tried an- anything and everything. It's very interesting. I think at the end of the day, it probably broke even. I, th- I, I believe it did very well in Canada. Um, really, it's it's become one of those um, well, cult, you, you cult know, favorites. You know, a lot of people hadn't heard of it. No, that's right. When we, when we started the podcast, um, oh, crikey, I mean, two and a half years ago, and we started off, Paul, just talking about consequences for about 12 weeks, uh, which, which was enormous fun, but we genuinely thought we were the only ones. We were just putting out these consequences episodes into, into the ether, and lo and behold, you know, hundreds of people started crawling crawling out of nowhere and uh, and it's been wonderful it's it's loved by a lot of people but most people have never heard of it and most people wouldn't like it but we Paul and I love it to death you know it's such a creative mm. a, a creative crazy thing it is I mean it's interesting that Kevin himself has a pretty interesting relationship with consequences I mean he, he it was such a um, a difficult thing for him that it's only recently that he's come round to sort of liking it and I still think he doesn't enjoy all of it and what he's told us he, he, he can't you know maybe it's tied in with the, re- the reception that the album got and the circumstances around which it was made but it's it, it's interesting that they put so much into it the two of them uh, and um, yeah you know. and it's taken him 40 40 odd years Paul hasn't it to to kind of appreciate it for for you know the brilliant thing that it is, he does yeah. find it hard to listen to all of it. But he, at least, he said now that he likes most of it. Um, <laughs> and, and, you know, and yeah. years ago he hated the damn thing. Where does the drumming journey start for you, Paul? Uh, well, at school, I was. Um uh, I think what the, the turning point for me was I, I was with um, uh, my mother went to visit a friend of hers and uh, I was 14 at the time and um, as, as the women you know had their conversation they said why don't you go upstairs she had a son my my age roughly my age and the, the women said why don't you go upstairs and 
and play, you know, while we we talk. So we went upstairs, and in in his bedroom was a, a drum kit. And um, I sat down at this and had a tap around, and I thought I like this. Hmm. And um, well, to be frank, I was better than he was. <laughs> <laughs> right, straight off. So there seemed to be a natural aptitude here. Uh, now, my my mother's uh, brother-in-law uh, had been a, a drummer. I'm not sure whether pre-war. I guess not pre-war, but post-war. He he played with a, a band in in London. Um, my mother was a southerner, and um, so she knew the, the enjoyment that, that a, a, a brother-in-law had, um, you know, as a playing. So when I um, when I broached the subject of um, you know wanting a, a drum kit, uh, she you know persuaded my dad to get me one or the bare bones of one. Um, I then met. There's a friend of mine who lived uh, just down the road. He played guitar. So we got together. And then um, things sort of went from, from there on. We, a couple of other guys joined, and that was our first band. Mm. Uh, then I got poached by another band. Um, these are still school days. Right. And... Um, and so on it went. I was with that band for, I think, about four four years. And then they reached a point where um, I was out gigging late and then having to get up for work in the morning uh, and something had to go. And um, a, a friend of mine persuaded me to, to jack my day job in and, and go, go pro. Mm. So that oh. was 1971. Yeah, Wiki says you were a civil servant. Is that right? I was a civil servant, yeah. Yeah, yeah, I was a strange civil servant. I had (laughs) hair halfway down my back in a suit. (laughs) (laughs) And the the job that I had um, involved going going out and measuring up things. Um, In those days, it was um, for what were called rates. Like council tax now? It is, yes, the equivalent of, yeah. 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 So I was out and about meeting the public, um, looking like Neil from The Young Ones. <laughs> <laughs> oh, was, it, was this about the time you met Dave Roll and, and joined that band that I, I'm not sure how to pronounce the name and I'd like you to pronounce it for me, A-N-K-H. I don't know how that's pronounced. Ank. Ank. With no hard... Sorry, say it again, Paul. Ank. Oh, it, oh, just simple as that. Okay, I, I yeah, went just, down. A... Just drop the H. Yes. Right. Okay. Um, which is which is the um, the Egyptian sign of life? Yes. Right. Right. Okay. Um, yeah, Dave, Dave Roll was um, well is um, heavily involved in uh, Egyptology. Yes. He's um, he's quite a a renowned figure in it these days. Um, so that that was the uh, the basis upon uh, that that was what he based his music on. Right, okay. okay, we um we we were sent some really interesting tapes, Paul. 
um, a little while ago. I'm not. I think you've met Dave Jarvis several times. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Uh, lovely Dave. Um, and we we spend half our podcast thanking him for these amazing yeah. recordings that he passes our way. Um, last year, he sent me three tracks by Ank. Yeah, I've not heard any of it since the 70s. Okay, wow, wow that's well, incredible. Okay. <laughs> um, we've got three tracks here, and I'd be grateful if you could shed some light on what sort of era they come from, whether you think it's early or mid-70s. Uh, but I think it, this sounds terrific, and it's got a, a very distinctive strawberry sound, I think. Uh, the first one I've got here is There's Still Time to Love. There's still time to live If you only realise That the world is there To share with everyone With everyone Right, just play a couple of uh, bits of these. Isis. I remember that one. Yeah. Who's the vocalist, Paul? Is is it Dave? Is he the lead vocalist? To be honest, I couldn't tell you. I think it there was after I left. There was a vocalist came in. See what happened? The um, the album wasn't released. Yeah, yeah. Is this the one uh, that was that was produced by Tommy Vance, the DJ? That's that's right. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, and recorded down in. Uh, at, so phonogram near Marble Arch in London. Yeah. Uh, basically using downtime. You know, we were late, late sessions. When, when the studios finished for the day, we, we'd do the nighttime sessions. Right. Um, so, I, yeah, this is very interesting. I don't know where these, these would have surfaced from. Obviously, they've been sitting there somewhere. Yeah, I mean, I I thought that these tracks were recorded at Strawberry North, which is how Dave Jarvis came to be looking after them. We did we did um, do some demos at Strawberry. Okay. Um, so maybe maybe these these are the demos. Ah, it could be. Check out some of this, Paul. I think. The recording and playing on these is just fantastic. I love the sort of progginess of it. favourite track of these three is this one uh, In Search of the Gates of Arment Oh yeah, yeah Kind of reminds me of Traffic, you know. Yeah, a band I really like. So, does that bring back any memories, Paul? I remember them. I do remember them. Yes. 
That's amazing. I'd, I'd love to have a copy of those. Um, oh, I've, I've, I've possibly, I've possibly got got some of that on um, reel to reel. Right. Oh. I guess after all this all, all this time, it's probably perished. The um, the oxide. Uh, disintegrates, doesn't it? It does, and I'll, I'll show you something, uh, Paul. I think you'll be amused by this. My uh, the, the the star the star uh, attraction is upstairs, actually, in the cupboard. But recently, we've been involved with restoring a whole load of strawberry reel to reel tapes, and what right. we've, what we've done is put them in a little oven um, to bake them for several hours. And that helps the the oxide re-stick to the tape. And so right, yeah. so, so far, Paul, we've had we've we've had a hundred percent success rate, haven't we? Uh, oh in, yeah. In, in extracting the audio digitally. So you know, just um, drop us a line if if you're interested in retrieving some things. Wow. Yeah, if I can find them. <laughs> <laughs> You asked about the timeline, 72, because um, I I met Dave Roll probably, yeah, mid-72. Mid I, I was a new boy in, in, in town, having turned pro in sem late 71. I was working with all sorts of bands around Manchester, and... Um, I would have uh, been introduced to Dave Roll at some point. He sure. got me involved in the project. And did the connection with uh, Eric then come through when you did some demos at Strawberry? Is that how you got to know Eric? Yes. Well, yes. Um, I did. I did. I did a few things in Strawberry in Central. Ah. Uh, one project was Ank. And I think before that, um, my first time in Strawberry was um, I got drafted in to play on a on a a track for um, I, I can't remember the artist, but Graham Goldman was the was a writer, right? And the produ the producer of the session, and Eric was the engineer. So was I met I met Eric and Graham at the same time. Okay. Was it a female well, vocalist by any chance? I can't. I really can't. Uh, no, no, uh, male vocalist. I can't, was it I can't remember Peter, who. Wasn't Peter Cowup? Was it? No. He did. Okay. Okay. No, I knew of Peter Cowup. Yeah. Right. Okay. So you were rubbing shoulders then in in Strawberry Studios. How how much involvement did you have observing Ten CC at work in the studio at that time? Well, um, having been um, approached by Eric um, February 73, um, that's the time that I was invited to, you know, pop in from time to time um, to see how things were going. So, you know, that was, I, was, I was a fly on the wall, to, you know, to quite a bit of the recording at that point. Right, Fantastic. so so it was planned in advance, or quite well in advance, that you were going to be part of the touring lineup, and and you were sort of 
being shown what you know the tracks essentially that you were going to be playing is is that the way it works um yes i guess so yeah yeah okay um, yeah because they were look they were looking ahead you know they were planning planning ahead they knew they were going to go on tour they secured the extra pair of hands that they needed hmm. right um so yes i was i was familiarizing myself with the with the material hmm. yeah that's, that's that's so do you remember the, the the first rehearsal session paul can you remember what was the first the first tune that you had a bash at and and were you <laughs> no doing idea. Were, that's I, a tough no, 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 and absolutely, you never know because yeah, 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 yeah. it's the kind of thing that I might, uh, you know, might stick in my memory, I guess. But okay. I'm really interested in the the dynamic between you and Kevin. Um, mm. Was it a case of you getting together for a cup of coffee and saying, right, you do drums on this one, and I'll, I'll, you know, bang a tambourine or play congas or something? It must have been difficult to juggle the percussing the percussion roles. <laughs> Maybe Kevin had an idea of which ones he wanted to play. Mm-hmm. Um, in fact, I think he played. He played most. From what I remember, he played most most songs. Um, obviously, if he went out front to sing, he wouldn't be playing. I'd be on kit for that. Some of the time, it was double drums. Yeah. Uh, not often. But most of the time, it was uh, he he played kit, and I would play overdub what would be the overdubs in the studio yeah so you know tom 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 fills and things like that that was generally how it worked it's interesting you should say that paul sorry to jump in but we, we were looking i'm sure you've seen this um uh i think it's the only professionally filmed uh original version of 10cc which is which was an in concert thing in 1974 presumably you've seen that where you're on drums and and the original four are playing in a kind of it's not a normal concert setting it's like in a tv studio but it's a live concert and um i was just looking at who was doing what and um on silly love for example you're doing most of the drumming and kev's just hitting the toms two-handed so maybe he's doing the that, that was that's the reverse of what i was yeah. saying right, yes right. In, in, maybe you didn't like that one as much so he gave it to you whereas what you were saying is true on, for example, Wall Street Shuffle, where he's playing the full kit uh, and you're also at the kit, but you're just playing a tambourine, that type of thing. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I, I, yes, I can see that. Uh, silly Love is a bit more energetic. <laughs> right. I'll say. So he fancy taking a breather. <laughs> <laughs> And do you, do you feel that yours and Kevin's drumming styles were similar already, Paul, or did you 
did you find that you had to adapt your own style to play a bit more like Kevin? Uh, no, not really, because Kevin, I mean, Kevin was a really good straight-ahead timekeeper. Yeah, brilliant timekeeper. He, he, was, he was quite economical. Mm-hmm. Um, he didn't play too many fills, but when he, when, he, when he did, they were usually very, very tasteful. Yes. Um, he was a, he was a <coughs> timekeeper, so I basically used to play around him. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I was I was given an almost free reign, if you like. Okay. Um, you know, with within within reason. Sure. Um, so I, I I got to play, you know, little tricky bits. Um, Kevin kept it straight. Okay. Right. Because he was he was singing as well. You know, yeah. there aren't, I can't think of too many um, drummers who play play in a complicated style who are vocalists as well. I mean, Phil Collins is the obvious obvious um, exception to the rule. You know, yes. Um, maybe maybe the guy with um, Boston, that sort of thing. Mm. You know, not 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 too many uh, lead lead vocalists on on drums. Absolutely, yeah. and even even Phil Collins used to come to the front of the stage and let Chester Thompson pound the skins. Yeah, I see what you're saying. Someone like Don Henley is actually a very straightforward drummer, isn't he? He's a kind of another guy who is a great singer and he plays at the same time, but he keeps it simple. Maybe he has to or something like that. Yeah, so in, in, the, in the case of the Eagles, back in, back in the day, they had, um, I think it was Joe Vitale from Joe Walsh's band. Okay. Right. Um, they always had a, a, a second drummer. Mm-hmm. I mean, two 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 drummers was quite a common thing. Uh, more common than you think. Right. Uh, a lot of the American bands had them: the Allman Brothers, Doobie Brothers, Frank Zappa. Yeah. You know, they're all doing it. Right. And and, and in Britain, it caught on. In Britain, you had bands like uh, Shorty Waddy, uh, the Glitter Band. Yeah. Um, Roy Woods band Wizard. Yeah. You know, so it was it was it wasn't wasn't that uncommon to have two drummers. Although in, in the in the case in the case of Shawadi Wadi and the Glitter Band, they, they were playing in unison. That right. was the only difference. Right, okay. Sure, sure. Paul, take us back to that exciting evening in the Isle of Man when uh, when the, the new 10cc band made its live debut. Do you have any vivid memories, maybe good ones, maybe not, of what it was like to take that show on the road? Um, I remember the reception was was incredible because they went out with a, a number one record, right? Um, Rubber Bullets, mm. you know, was uh, top of the charts. So what a great start! Incredible. You know. <laughs> We did the same. We did the same venue the following year, same date the following year. Okay. Um, it was August Bank Holiday. I remember. 
Yeah, it was a bit of an adventure. <laughs> I remember all the gear went in two transit vans. Wow. Because the ferries, the ferries in those days, um, I'm not sure if they would drive on. They might have been lifted on, but the uh, the height the height restrictions. So it was it was low roof transits. Um, I think the following year we did it in three transits. <laughs> <laughs> the budget had improved, obviously. Yes. Yes. Wow. yes, it was. Um, it was. It was. It was a great experience to uh, to start at that that level. So the rehearsals would have been would have been quite uh, involved. I can't remember how long we actually rehearsed. I mean, it would have been every day for at least a month, I would have thought. Mm. Wow. Um, certainly throughout August of 73, um, possibly earlier than that, July maybe started. I, I, I can't remember any preliminary rehearsals. I think we just started on block and just work through the whole thing. Sure. But they are broken Men who lie low Waiting for miracles How did you come to be playing keyboards? Because also on that in concert thing during Old Wild Men you're playing a synth. Um, was it well, it's. I mean, like I say, I was I was the auxiliary member, if you like. Yeah, right. Um, whatever needed doing, you know, I was the extra pair of hands. Yes, right. Um, I had played a bit of piano um, in my youth. I didn't get very far with it. Mm. Right. So uh, basically, I was just learning that part and and uh, and doing it that way. Sure. I didn't do too much on on keyboards. Yeah, just odd, odd little things like that. And quite nerve wracking though. If you if you've just got a few lessons under your belt and then uh, you're sort of playing synth in front of a very large audience. Well, I mean, if if you if you learn it parrot fashion, you know. Yeah. yeah I mean, there is a. I mean, even even today, you know, I, I, I still do that. Um. Well, when we play Old Wild Men. Oh, you play the same part, right. Okay. Yeah, so um, I'm always thinking, oh, God, I hope I don't mess it up. It's that old thing, you know. Have a less, have a left the gas on. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, your mind wanders. Yeah, cold sweat yeah. nightmares. That yeah, recurring nightmares. Tell us what it was like, Paul, being on on stage with the the four others. It, it strikes me that the personalities were were very very strong. We we in all of those clips of LOL back in the seventies, you see that he's a fantastic front man, almost a the kind of joker of, of the live band. What were the different personalities and dynamics like in that in that live band? Uh, there's a lot of humour. It was it was just so funny every day. 
Mm. You know, lots of laughter. Um, nobody, nobody was uh, a dominant figure. You know, mm. everybody got on with it. And I mean, they, they always tried anything. You know, they're game for anything. <laughs> Try it. If it works, great. If it doesn't, on to the next thing. But um, no, they were great to be around. It was it was um, it was really good fun. No um, no ego problems uh, at that point, anyway. Yes. Mm. Um, yeah. Good 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 days. Good days. Fantastic. We'd love to ask you more about how things changed later on, Paul, in in sort of later versions of the band, but. Just finally, perhaps on the, if you like, the original five-piece uh, lineup. What were the particular highlights for you of of songs that you played live? Were there any that you think, oh, great, I love doing this one? Were there any particular highlights? Um, back then, I, I can't. It's it's different now because I'm playing. Well, I'm the only drummer, so yes, um, I get I get to play stuff that I didn't play back then. Because uh, Kevin would be playing it, um, I can't think of any particular ones that stand out. I mean, it was, it was all interesting. Yes, I guess "Silly Love," you know, is, is. I mean, that's an interesting one to play because it's it changes. You know, it goes from on beat, off beat. Yes, you've got those kind of strange. You've got those strange tom fills, haven't you? That are kind of syncopated. Is that right? Yeah, well, um, I don't think... No, we don't play that these days. Huh? Um, that's physically impossible for one to play. Ah, uh, because it was done with overdubs in the studio, you mean? Yeah. Ah, yeah. right, right. OK. But between you and me, I think it's... Yeah, we've um, we've just started rehearsing some 10CC stuff uh, for a, a 50th anniversary tribute gig that we're doing next year, Paul. And, right. and "Silly Love" is one of the tunes that we've we've had a bash at, and uh, the the drummer is having a hell of a time with it. <laughs> that, that's why, because he's trying to play two parts. Absolutely, I'll have to tell him this. He, he'll he'll stop having nightmares i think but he's doing a great he's doing a grand job but uh yeah that is really interesting yeah i hadn't really thought about that i mean i suppose there would be a way of playing it but it would be um it would be a complicated part yeah and really that that song has to power on so you have to concentrate on the on the you know get getting a constant rhythm going right it's, right. uh, the the last thing you want is is a drummer who's um, playing a, a, a disjointed part, yes. Because then then it, everything becomes um, uneasy. Yes. Yeah, it has to it has to have a solid foundation. So um, some something has to go. And and in in the in the case of that tune, it was it was the overdub. Time went on. I never really gave it a thought. The, uh, the those those Tom overdubs, but 
mm. as you say, that that was an integral integral part of the song. So um, yeah. back in the day, that that would have been the detail that they wanted. Mm. No, hundred percent. Paul, we've, yeah. we've we've already touched on Kevin and Lowell flying the nest and uh, launching into their Consequences project. That must have been a very um, strange and perhaps a really exciting time. And of course, you're you're about to become the drummer in the studio with 10CC. Can you can you talk us through what you remember of, of that transition from from the four piece to the three piece? Well. I mean that happened in a quite an abrupt way. I mean they 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 were they were moving along at a at a good pace. Things were you know getting bigger and more successful. Um, Kevin Lowell wanted to work on consequences. Uh, well, they they wanted. I mean the, the the whole point of that was it was a vehicle to um, demonstrate what their gizmo could do. Yes. Yeah. That's that's what they were working on, and um, I think they wanted Eric and Graham to take a year off while while they concentrated on that, um, and that that wasn't going to happen. So they said, "Well, we'll we'll leave because you know this is our conviction. We want to work on it." As it happened, it took eighteen months. Yes. Yeah. Um, I remember the phone call from Eric. Um, he said, um, "Eric and uh, Kevin and Lowell are leaving the band," and uh, big gulp. <laughs> mm. <laughs> oh yeah. Um, and he said, "But Graham and I are going to um, give it a go and see see what happens." You know, are you on board? Which I was. Mm. Um, so it was it was as simple as that. That must have been incredibly exciting. It was um, because I'd, I'd never recorded with them before, um, and the way they record is is well, it wasn't. I don't know if it is today, but um, nobody else was really recording that way. You know, it wasn't a complete rhythm section. Uh, the way they they recorded it. If if a song was written on the, on the guitar, then I would have to play to that the guitar. Just to get a drum track, if it was written mean, on piano, it would it was drums and piano. Right. And so you mean the the master take was done already on guitar, and you had to put drums no, on top no, of that? No, oh, okay. It was um, it was a guide. A guide track would be okay. guitar or, or piano. Yes. Okay. Um, just so that so that they could get a drum track, and then everything was built around that. They'd replace the guitar or piano. Right, based okay. on it. Yeah. It was built from the ground up. going to ask you about the things we do for love which might have been one of the first ones you recorded or what what can you remember was it the first one you recorded i th i thought the first one was um good morning judge right okay okay right um, uh, because i i i have an acetate of that 
somewhere without wow. the vocal. Wow. Right. Because um, everything, it was, everything was an unknown quantity at that time. Uh, the studio was still being built around us. Hmm. Yeah, in Dorking, right? Yeah. Yeah. So um, as, the, as the first things were recorded, they wanted to know how they were going to sound, right. you know, when it, when it was pressed up. So as soon as they, as soon as they could, they they had a test pressing um, to see how things were turning out. Yeah. Well, so I mean, I'm, I'm pretty, we, we... I'm pretty sure "Good Morning Judge" was the first because we'd actually we played "Good Morning Judge" with the original band. Yes. Yes, at Nebworth it was played, wasn't it? Yes. Um, mm. And I can remember there were. There were two drum parts. One one was straight time, and the other one was half time. Right. Which is the the way I played it on on the on the release version. See, talking of half time and and full time, I was going to talk about the things we do for love because that's a a, a well a very well written um, drum part. Did you know that during the introduction it's half time then it goes to full time and it's got very well kind of clearly prescribed fills did you write that part or did you write it in collaboration with eric and or graham i think that was just playing along with with the with the piano right okay you know just coming up with uh what, whatever i came up with mm -hmm. whatever i mean i just i just try different things and and then i'd, I'd either get the <laughs> yeah okay okay thumbs up or thumbs down for the for the benefit of people who can't yeah. see <laughs> all the people in the world lost their reason what would we see where would we I mean, everything was experimental you know sure sure yeah. And it really gelled, didn't it? There's some lovely sort of simpler poppy stuff on Deceptive Bends. Uh, and of course, you know, the the masterpiece that, that is Feel the Benefit. I mean, that must have yeah. that must have taken a long time in the studio. Yes, yes. I haven't got great memories of it, um, I must admit, because every every day was different. Yes. Um, the process was, was the same. You know, you just try things. I think in, in, in that case, we'll probably just tackle a verse, work on a verse, and then you'd work on a chorus, and then see how, how you went from one to the other. And then, of course, when it came to a take, you know, you, you'd try and do the whole thing. I mean, there would have been, you know, drop-ins. Yes. But if there, if there was um, a, guide, a guide piano, or well, in that case, it would have been piano, Mm -hmm. uh, we could drop the drums in. Yeah. But the, the ultimate goal was to get that drum track. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so every everything that I came up with was purely off the top of my head. I wasn't one for writing stuff down, pre-planning sure. stuff. Sure. I know, I never was. Well, that, yeah, that spontaneity and immediacy comes through. And obviously Eric and Graham were smart enough to 
to go with that, I suppose, and recognise that it had that vibrancy. Absolutely. And uh, I'm really fond, Paul, of um, of your work on the middle section of Field of Benefit, where it goes into that wonderful Latin break. Uh, uh, particularly, you're playing what sounds like timbales or something. Uh, yeah. And it suddenly comes over all Santana. It's amazing. <laughs> that must have been fu- that must have been fun to do. Yeah. Well, I mean, at that time, I was I was listening to funk stuff and all sorts. So. You know, and anything and everything was was an inspiration. Whoever wrote the song had had a basic idea of what they wanted. Yeah. So um, that that would that would come across in in how they play guitar or, or piano. So you get it. You you get the flavour of it from that. Other than that, I, w- I was I was left to my own devices pretty much. Come up with what you come up with. Graham Graham wouldn't wouldn't play bass until he knew what the drums were going to do. Right. And ultimately, when the thing was finished, you know, I, I would often think if I if I'd have known Graham was going to play that, I would have played something different. Ah. Um, but hey ho, I didn't really. I think there was one time I got to re-record something to a complete track, but that was a one-off. Right. So, for the most part, what I, what I came up with initially was what I was stuck with. How right. interesting! Because yeah. very often there's a in a lot of bands that the drummer and bass player kind of develop their parts, don't they, together? But yeah. it's fascinating yeah. what you're saying that basically you set the, the the drum part down in tablets of stone, and then Graham would only add his bass parts to that. So there was no chicken and egg thing. It was like the chicken comes before the egg how interesting i think there might have been another reason for that musically sean possibly because if the bass is added last it gives you a little bit more latitude harmonically to make alterations to the chords a little bit you you know graham might have wanted to also not just rhythmically but melodically throw in a different set of bass notes or something yeah and and of course graham sees himself more of a guitarist doesn't he than a yeah band, right well he's Yes, he started out as, as a guitar player. It's interesting because the way he plays the bass is, is yeah, it's very guitar orientated. Um, he's one of the few bass players I know who who uses his thumb over over the top of the neck, which is a guitar thing. Yes, yes right, right. His use of passing notes is is very interesting. Mm. Yeah, very, very guitar bass. Absolutely, and such melodic parts. Yeah. Yeah, uh, quite like McCartney, I think, in many ways. Yes, yes. Uh, good comparison, yeah. Yeah, well, also in the nature of recording, because certainly in the second half of the Beatles' career, Paul often overdubbed the bass later. Um, so, yeah, yeah, that's right. Starting with Pepper, most of that had bass put on at the end, which is quite interesting. Right. 
You've been listening to The Consequences podcast, produced by Paul McNulty and Sean McCreevy. Thanks for listening.